0: If we look at our own housing history and get to learn that a bit more, there's a lot of opportunity there to learn from our own buildings in Sydney.
1: This was a much bigger scheme and what we're seeing is something that was delivered progressively and not delivered
2: entirely as it was originally planned. Probably a lot of resistance and feedback as well
0: this type of building wasn't what should be built. They really should have had workers living out in the suburbs.
3: The housing was so beautiful. They are still there and they're retired.
2: Welcome to the third episode of the Two Point Perspective podcast. This is a special edition for Sydney Open. Sydney Open is Sydney Living Museum's festival of design and architecture where many of the city's buildings are usually open. This year, however, due to COVID, we are restricted to being outside. Today, we're taking the opportunity to look at affordable housing, walking around with the authors of the Affordable Housing Architecture Guide map, Michael Zanardo and Noni Boyd.
1: We first wanted to do this as a road trip, following the New South Wales Housing Commission's 1947 booklet Homes for the People, which features maps and directions for five road tours of housing developments throughout Sydney, because that was the era of the first Commonwealth state housing agreement in the mid-1940s, in which renting in public houses was conceived of as a decent and genuine alternative to home ownership. The Housing Commission was of such a scale that it built one in every six dwellings in the state at the time. The tours in the booklet show that there was once a real interest in the subject from the general public. In many of the projects, you see architects and planners grappling with the issue of how can design impact social issues. We're going to be looking at a range of projects across different periods where we can see some really interesting changes in the philosophy of how that was applied.
2: Well, I'm really looking forward to it because these buildings are all around us. We don't think about them a lot. We don't talk about them a lot. But I think when we walk around and we have these experts to talk to, we're going to learn a lot about how these things were conceived and how they were received. So, Michael, with the term affordable housing, I think that you're using that to describe a lot of different types of housing by different providers. So social housing, workers' housing and community housing. It's just a useful term to describe things delivered not by the market. Would that be right?
0: That's right. Affordable housing is an umbrella term and it captures just those things, social housing, workers' housing, council housing. The other thing about affordable housing is that it almost always requires some subsidisation, either by state government, that would be social or public housing, or by other bodies.
1: You've studied this a lot in a number of different ways. How did you first become interested in it?
0: I was really drawn to the puzzle of apartment buildings, but the social housing and affordable housing buildings are the most interesting because they have a different brief to market housing. Those projects have a landlord or an owner that has a long-term interest in the project and they're really interested in the quality of the dwellings that they create for people to live in because they're responsible to the people who, who live in those dwellings. My final year project at uni was an investigation of 1960s housing commission apartment buildings. And I enjoyed that project so much that having graduated, I applied for a Barra Hadley Travelling Scholarship and looked into that topic even further. And that became a PhD eventually.
2: Because reading in your uh, PhD, what was interesting was that you said, while the Dutch projects are very exciting and very interesting. The actual existing Australian ones were most appropriate and actually had a lot to offer that you didn't necessarily need to go overseas to study housing, I guess.
0: When you you look overseas for precedents, there are a lot of cultural differences. Climate's an obvious one. The Dutch are notorious for having the smallest dwellings in the world and Australia has some of the largest. They even have really tight little windy stairs that we're not allowed to do here. So there are a whole lot of cultural and legislative differences that can sometimes make it really hard to translate housing ideas from overseas. The opposite of that is that if we look at our own housing history and get to learn that a bit more, there's a lot of opportunity there to learn from our own buildings in Sydney.
1: Great. So how did you meet Noni?
3: We can blame Anthony Mitchell, I think, for that. When I was doing some work for housing, um, looking at the buildings in Millers Point, Anthony introduced Michael, who was doing his thesis then, so that I could help with some of the historical research and find the drawings. Okay,
1: so you collaborated on the affordable housing map and what, you know, you, you notice that the map's basically in the early 1900s. I think the first project is 1908. So what, what is happening at that time, Noni?
3: But there were earlier projects which were demolished, so we didn't put those on the map because I haven't quite worked out exactly where some of them are or tracked them down. So what happened was the resumption. So after the outbreak of plague, they resumed all the land and then they put together a panel with Hickson, uh, Government Architect Vernon, and then they were going to redo all of the substandard housing, and that's what they did. It, it was to do with public health. It was to eradicate any building that is likely to contain disease-infested rats was identified and demolished. Okay, so let's give you a proper intro. So what? how did you get interested in the subject? It's a family of interest. I come from a family of architects, so my aunt designs old people's homes and schools in northwest London. And you, But you did your PhD on Vernon. I did my PhD on Vernon because of the good buildings that he designed that I looked at when I was at Public Works. So I didn't start out being interested in the housing. For Vernon, I started out with the post offices and the jails and all the buildings that we were working on. It was whatever I had to research for the projects. So my aunt would take me around these, take me around London. I was dragged around London, but I loved it, you know, shown what, used to be here or what's here. So basically that was two trips before I went to uni.
1: So the first building on the affordable housing map that we're visiting is the Strickland building in Chippendale. It's in an area that is resumed in 1911 and with all the houses demolished because Chippendale is one of the slums. All the Existing housing stock has issues with sanitation, ventilation. There's really no plumbing, often no bathrooms. A lot of these areas had no garbage service. So it becomes a real concern for public health that people are living in these houses. The city council become increasingly concerned with that. And then this becomes the first public housing scheme constructed by a local government authority with this model of three-storey density.
3: Noni, do you want to talk about this approach by the City of Sydney? The City wanted to do public housing for a long time, but the Act didn't permit them. The state government had to put in a law that let them, and they didn't want the Mayor to have that much power. So the City asked and from years up until 1912 to be able to build model workers' housing. So, what used to be called slum tours where the mayor would go around and condemn buildings and the mayor would do that along with some housing um, agitators and it was called the mayor's slum tour and that's where the phrase slumming it comes from but it wasn't until the acts were changed that they actually had the legislative power to be able to resume and to build public housing in their own local government area so daisyville was built outside of a local government area The city council had to build within its own local government area. So it had to find land to do so. So it resumed a number of areas that considered public health risks. And Chippendale was so bad that they decided whole blocks weren't built to building code. They'd been built in the 1850s and they had to go.
0: It's in response to the 1908-1909 Royal Commission where they investigated slums and they decided that workers should really live outside of the city in freestanding houses surrounded by garden, and Daisyville was the largest, most visible version of that. This project in the middle of the city is is a real counter-project. It's intensely urban, and it addressed council's need to build housing for its workers within its local government area boundary. To do that, it needed to build incredibly densely because the land was so valuable.
2: The Strickland buildings are very... They're very popular building amongst architects and, you know, aficionados of housing because they do a lot of things and they have been very, you know, effective and worked well for a hundred years. When you come here, it's interesting because it's only three stories high, but it's tall because of the big floor to floors at that time. And it's long. It covers a whole city block. The main impact is it's quite a gracious building with places for people in a tree-lined street. It's actually broken up into seven separate parts each with their own entrance, and those entrances go out onto the street and there's a sort of veranda, or you you might call it a stoop. It does actually look a little bit like a nice street in the village in New York, to some degree. And then the building itself, it's not what you would imagine an apartment building to be. It's really like a federation house. All the elements are from federation housing or federation public buildings. It's nicely put together. That gives us a feeling of homeliness and also... It's inviting, you know. It has a lot of balconies looking to the street. Each apartment has a balcony. and it's an indented balcony, so it's more like an outdoor room. It's not just cantilevered and very open. There's a lot of privacy on those balconies, and you can see that people have their little gardens in there. But the building itself is made of like a nice orange-faced brick. It's got a decorative brick for the arches. It's got a sandstone, keystone. Then there's timber handrails, cast-iron downpipes and timber double hung windows. And all of these are what you see in houses of the same period.
1: Yeah, it's arts and crafts style.
2: Yes, and that detail breaks it down a bit and makes it accessible. It doesn't look industrially made.
1: Michael, do you want to talk about some of the innovations of the building?
2: Well,
0: from an urban design perspective, the building is broken down into seven parts. Some of them are are very bold and built out to the street. There's some speculation that that is to knit in with the context of the time, which was warehouse buildings. So at the short ends of the block and at two intermediate points along the block, there are these buildings which come right out to the footpath and they have a very solid presentation. In between them, these setback portions, which were originally garden plots, so they're planted with trees and they do have that more domestic character There are also spaces which lend space back to the street width. So whilst it was a slum clearance area, the streets that they put back still weren't as wide as they needed to be under the Sydney Corporation Act, but the garden plots lend that extra width to make the streets effectively that wide and provide landscaping to the streets. The building's incredibly narrow. It's only a maximum of 13 metres deep. And what that means is that there's an awful lot of perimeter wall. Can have lots of windows in it for really great light and air. Every room in this building, including the bathrooms, get a window. There are light wells. They have windows to light wells.
3: And it's all for air movement and public health and sanitation. The toilets backed out onto the balconies. The kitchen, the sink was on the onto the balconies, so that air was there. Then the bathroom windows internally and the kitchen windows. Every single kitchen and bathroom were stacked in pods with the concrete floors is onto a light well so that the air gets circulated up and out of the building. It's a very clever design.
0: Another thing this building does is it ends onto larger streets where the horses and carts were trundling along in 1914. That's where they put shops and they had all different uses. So one of the things this building does is it places all of the shops at the noisiest spot on the ground floor so there isn't residences at that point in the building. And the other thing it does is it uses the roof, which is wonderful. All of the stairwells in the building go up to the roof where the laundries are located and there's drying areas and also places for children to play. While it would be difficult to build this building again with its materials and details, all of those lessons are really useful for design of new buildings today.
1: Well, One of the interesting things is there's the concern in the design for sanitation and ventilation, but there's also that sort of moral overview with this idea of the immorality of the slums because the flats are three bedrooms primarily. What was the idea behind that? The
3: idea is that male and female children don't share a room. The issue was what you might see on the staircase whilst going to your flat was a concern too so they didn't want young children to be corrupted if they's someone who's maybe you know a streetwalker or someone who was dead drunken in the passageway they didn't want children to see that and you couldn't protect a child if they're living in a block where there's all this other sort of antisocial behavior. So it's still an issue with, with managing tenant behavior and housing and how you manage that. But you don't want to have to step over a drunk person to get to your front door. Staircases, they have them in the air so that they're fresh air. You have large numbers of pods. You only have six apartments. So you're limiting the, the social problems and the corruption of children.
2: When it was finished, what was the reception and what happened to the master plan?
0: Well, the building wasn't well received. Characters like Bradfield, who had an interest in railways stretching out into the suburbs, thought that this type of building wasn't what should be built. They really should have had workers living out in the suburbs using his train system. Other characters like Florence Taylor also said that this was a terrible thing. Although I believe she ended up living in apartments at the end of her life. It was poorly received. Other factions in council thought it was a waste of money. I think over time, the building has got the appreciation it deserves.
1: So we have walked from Strickland in Chippendale up to Erskineville to project number 24 on the affordable housing map, the Erskineville Park Rehousing Scheme. Is that what you call it, Michael?
0: That's what it was called originally. Uh, I think it has... Erskineville housing estate on the wall.
1: So this project's 1938. What has happened in the context of affordable housing in the intervening years?
0: When the depression hit, the builders stopped building and it created a really acute housing shortage. So by 1937, the state government set up a new body called the Housing Improvement Board to build housing again for the first time in 13 years. And it looked all over New South Wales for suitable places to build. It looked in Newcastle, it looked in Redfern, it looked in Paddington, but it settled pretty quickly on Erskineville as a place for slum clearance and rebuilding in a new modern way.
1: This is not so much sort of resumption and clearing old housing because this was actually open space. It was like a sports field or something, I believe.
0: There were plans to resume and clear an awful lot of Erskineville, but the local council resisted that idea. The state government pursued its ambition by passing a new act, and it built a demonstration project that was actually in the park, so it didn't clear any houses to build this project.
1: So what we have is, Strickland, we've got that sort of more denser apartments, essentially. This is two-storey blocks, walk-up apartments. What's the philosophy behind that?
0: The idea for Erskineville was imported from Europe. The architects of the project, Richardson and Herman, had both been to Europe and they'd seen this new way of building, which was buildings in landscape setting what's so different about this project and it's really the first time that it's happened in sydney is that the subdivision of the land is ignored it's amalgamated and the buildings that are built on that new super lot no longer turn and face the street as terrace houses would They're set in a park away from the road, away from the cars, and cars were becoming more dominant in the streetscape at that point in time, and providing an idea of outlook and greenery between buildings where children could play safely.
3: Very Scandinavian approach to the provision of model housing, Stockholm, um, Copenhagen. It's a very nice way of providing areas for children to play.
2: Yeah, it's kind of the garden city concept, and then it's, been made a bit Scandinavian. But as you were saying, it's really pleasant. It's a, There's a pleasant outlook here, and that's to do with the cars being separated from the circulation to the dwelling. So if you do drive a car, you park over there and you might walk up to 100 metres to your flat. But what that means is it's it does create this very quiet central space, which is really beautiful. Just looks beautiful today. It's so quiet. It's so so serene.
1: So these are flats for families. Was that the concept?
0: Yeah. The idea for these units is that newly married couples with babies would move in. And all the units were identical. That was their target demographic. And it was so engineered that part of the provision on site were dedicated cupboards for perambulators.
3: I thought that was the rubbish bin storage. No, no. no. It still happens in Europe. There's a room for the prams because they're too bulky to take in the lift. You leave it downstairs in the pram room. You have this idea of the family will move when it's bigger. The family moves to another house. They didn't work in Stockholm. The housing was so beautiful. They are still there and they're retired.
2: (laughs) Well, it's really pleasant to be here. And these buildings are tiny. They're not only low, but they're shallow as well. So each block is probably only about seven or eight metres wide. Unlike the 13 metre wide Strickland building we were looking at before. So they're single loaded. Unlike the, say, the Swedish models, which would have back-to-back apartments in a building, these ones allow really good cross ventilation through and also really good light from the east and the west, and sometimes also the north. They also had a a balcony, which in most cases has been glazed in, and that was seen as a place to sleep outside, an enclosed balcony. It's super pleasant. But there are drawbacks, aren't there, Michael?
0: It's deceptive because it is such a low scale and it is so green, and the trees are taller than the buildings and it is a very pleasant environment. And maybe at this scale that's positive, but this idea of buildings in a landscape setting, Erskineville is the first social housing project in Sydney that takes on this model. But once you increase the scale of this arrangement, the ultimate end game is towers and slabs at Waterloo. And in that situation, The spaces between the buildings become so broad that it's sort of difficult to know who owns the space. Do the buildings own the space or is it part of the public domain? And it becomes an in-between space that is not as well-defined and pleasant as at Erskineville.
2: So neither public nor private. And so visitors are not really sure what they can do in that place. Whereas in a street, everyone has a good understanding of what is appropriate behavior.
1: This was a much bigger scheme, and what we're seeing is something that was delivered progressively and not delivered entirely as it was originally planned.
0: So the block on Swanson Street is approximately a quarter of the project. It was supposed to expand to the south and towards the Oval. That would have been a project four times the size. Only the first quarter was built before the war, and after the war, The other parts of that master plan were built uh, in the late 40s or the early 50s to fill in the last three blocks.
1: Yeah, one of the things that you've said about this project is that it is the precursor to the modern approach to social housing across Sydney. So how about we walk over now to Waterloo where we see that played out in really massive scale projects?
2: We've walked over to the Endeavour project in Waterloo. Map reference, 44 to 50. The Endeavour project is probably what everyone in Sydney thinks as a big housing project. This is our example of the modernist dream of towers in a landscape setting. And there's quite a few different types. It's a massive project. I'm not sure how many units, but five or six hundred units in total or more. And I just went past the memorial down there when it was opened by the Queen and Prince Philip in 77. So it was a big project, big state funding, and also, again, probably a lot of resistance and feedback as well. Several of the buildings were done by Stafford, Moore, and Farrington, who were very good architects on top of the game. They are well-detailed and well-built. Interestingly, I was looking at the two thin towers, Matavai and Tarunga, and because they were doing Martin Place Station at the same time, it has the same details. The ticket windows in Martin Place are like the balconies on Matavai and Tarunga. The Madhavi and Tarunga Towers are 30-storey buildings with eight apartments each floor, and they're, they're sets and a single room. Well, they're actually one-bedders, and there's actually some two-bedders there, but they're small rooms, small um, apartments, meant to be for retired people, and they're very tall, thin towers with a small footprint in a big landscape. The buildings that are probably the most prominent here are the 17-storey slab buildings. They're probably 200 metres long. They create a wall running north and south through Waterloo, and they can be seen from most places. There were six more towers proposed, but they were prevented by resident action. Michael, what do you think of it? At this point
0: in the Housing Commission's history, they're really pushing for the most volume and the fastest construction, and maybe those ideas about human scale elements started to fall away. We're talking here with speedy construction with precast elements applied to the outside, repetitive plans, double loaded corridors uh, with a central lift core and units facing either east or west, single oriented. When you look at the architectural drawings for these projects, particularly the pencil towers, they're drawn as the ground level with a cut line. The typical floor repeat 28 times and the roof above it, that gives you an indication of how they thought about their buildings. They thought about them as a repetitive construction system, and maybe those ideas about inhabitation had fallen away. Waterloo is sort of interesting for its scale and its completeness of raising a place before and building new buildings. I, I heard a statistic once that the number of new dwellings built in the towers and the slabs was the same amount of dwellings that they replaced. So all of that open space and the height of those buildings doesn't really correlate with a higher density project. It's a different form. Compared to Erskineville, where we just were, it's the sort of logical conclusion of upscaling that approach. And the buildings get a lot taller and a lot further apart. And I really don't think it's successful in terms of city making. You lose the feeling of the street and being able to walk past front doors, long shadows, and that definition of space of public versus private and which is it somewhere in between.
2: We're standing up here on a, in a park, it's hilly, there's a playground in front of us, it's very green. It's beautiful day spring the trees looking magnificent It's, it's the nicest day that you could be here probably maybe the nicest time of year but at night or in winter at another time it might be a bit difficult to navigate and a bit intimidating the thing about the towers in this landscape is there's a lot of different sorts of open space and it creates a lot of unknown situations These sorts of spaces in America and in England brought about studies of defensible space and crime prevention through environmental design. If you look at the SEPTED triggers, a lot of them are here and they're all about just preventing crimes, surveillance, being watched. What you see here, which is the green landscape is lovely, but there's a lot of possible dangers around here. These are some of the things that have led to a more street and block and townscape-based urban design and housing design. While this was being built, these principles were being formulated.
1: On the corner of the site of the Endeavour project, two buildings known as Artist's Corner, they're called Drysdale and Dobell, and they're built in 1983. And they've taken a quite a different approach. Do you want to describe them, Michael?
0: Yeah, so Drysdale and Dobell, also concrete buildings similar to the Endeavour project and on the face of it, they share a lot of similarity. However, their form and their unit layout and the approach to the design of those buildings are very different to the repetition of the towers and the slabs. The units within Drysdale and Dobell have an idea built into them about garden apartments. They're based on a L-shaped townhouse design that was built in Macquarie Fields. It was a really liked type in the commission at the time. And this type was so successful, they decided to employ it for an apartment building and they stacked it. And by stacking it and stepping it back, it meant that all the balconies could see the sky. You could step out of your living room and look up and see the trees in the sky. Whilst they share similarities with the towers and slabs nearby, the ideas in Drysdale and Dobell are, are a lot more human and a lot more human scale about connecting with outdoors.
2: You can see if you, on the west side, which has the balcony is a heavily landscaped. They're really well looked after. They have trees on them. It cascades down a bit like a hanging garden to a courtyard. There's also a childcare in, I think that's Dobell. They seem to be really beautiful apartments. The interesting thing about them is they, Even though they're low, they're almost designed to look tall as well. A real vertical emphasis for something so low.
0: The Drysday building still has that thing where it's set back from the street with with one front door. At this point in the department's career, they haven't re-engaged with the street as much as they would have, say, with Walker Street.
1: This sort of density and tower approach became less favoured into the 80s. Actually, this whole precinct is proposed for demolition and is currently going through process of redesigning new buildings, often with a lot higher densities. And so we should also say it's part of a new metro station. So it's like a mixed development with just a small portion of social housing within that development.
2: So these buildings here, which were done from 74 to 82, they're based on a theory which is really from the 20s without much modification. In the 50s and 60s, the townscape movement was gaining momentum. 20 years later, these buildings don't show any reference to that. I'm just wondering that now... They were built in, finished in 77 and proposed for demolition something like 30 to 40 years later. Are we again following a, an old model, an already obsolete model of redevelopment? Because, you know, Lacaton and Vassell would say, never demolish, never remove or replace, always transform and reuse and leave the people living there while you do it. So no decanting of tenants and community. That could have been an option here.
1: Right, we've walked over to the Waterloo housing group that's in Walker Street. It's number 92 on the map, and it's by the Department of Housing in around 1989, the
2: late 1980s. These big fig trees, what sort of figs are they, Rebecca?
1: Hills ficus.
2: Big hills ficus are full of birds getting at the berries. Bird noise is an issue here. There's a lot of shade. And it gives it a real scale.
1: It's an interesting change in approach where we see the influence of the urban renewal group, which had emerged in the Department of Housing in the early 1970s. And some of their earlier projects in Wollamaloo had been impacted by green bands, which meant they had to really work with the existing typology and the existing Uh, housing that remained and so their focus was much more in reinforcing the character of an area and adapting to existing housing types. So it's a change of approach from the large-scale slum clearances for the slab and tower blocks. And these projects in Walker Street show a very different approach. They accept the structure of the existing urban layout and then reinforce it with new housing and public facilities. We're standing between two projects on opposite sides of the street, both three-storey buildings. What are they, Michael?
0: In this part of Waterloo, in Walker Street, the Urban Renewal Group identified the potential for greater density. And that was based on the qualities of the existing street with very large fig trees, the width of the reserve. They thought that this would be a good place to have more housing. The type that they developed is quite uncommon, but the idea is that along the streetscape are a series of four metre wide terrace houses, each with front doors, front gardens, front gates and front paths. Those terrace houses go through to the backyard and have a private open space at ground level. The rear half of the terrace house, it rises another two storeys with bedrooms. So it's an l shaped in section. And then sitting on top of those L-shaped terrace houses, cradled in the Ls, are double-width one-bedroom apartments. They're accessed at four points along the block, and you would go up one storey and two storeys to those units, and have they have a large balcony which overlooks the street. So each unit has outdoor space? The terrace houses have the large private open space at the ground floor, and the one-bedroom units have a large balcony overlooking the street. The Urban Renewal Group developed that up as a sketch and then gave it to two different architects on each side of the street. So on one side, Philip Cox, Richardson and Taylor developed that sketch up in one way. And on the other opposite side of the street, Peter Myers developed that up in another way.
2: There's a lobby in between each terrace house and that corridor runs all the way to the back lane, doesn't it? Where there's car parking and there's a sort of open structure out there as well, or used to be.
0: Yeah. So the, in the Peter Myers scheme, there are more corridors running through the block and in the Cox scheme, there are less in the Cox scheme. you go upstairs and along corridors behind those one bedroom units in the Peter Myers scheme, you go up the stairs and then there's a one bedroom unit on either side of the stair. But at ground level, those corridors do go through and connect with the rear lane and each of the terrace houses have car parking off the lane.
2: To complete the street to the, the Peter Myers block, which is on the east side of Walker Street, has this building either side of it done by the inner city project team. And they mediate this, the three-storey scale down to two. And it, in each of those, I think there's nine or ten single rooms or, or bedsits. So there's a real effort to infill and create a unified streetscape along here. And in 1994, it won the Lloyd Reese Award for urban design. And the jury described it as the finest residential streets built for a century.
0: Since Victoria Street, Potts Point.
2: Wow. Well, other things that we probably need to say about it is that it has a distinctive architectural expression, like Peter Myers' work. The balconies are worth talking about because they're quite like the Strickland balconies. And I, I wonder if we really looked at those. They're partly indented, they're not transparent. The balustrade is basically solid, so you have privacy on the balcony. The columns that come down also give you another element of enclosure, like the Strickland arts and crafts columns, just makes it more of a outdoor room. And then he's doing something with the top story because he's got a bit of extra height there and that's shown on the balcony. It's also shown in the top rooms of that apartment. So he's taking advantage of what he can, which makes it a special building. But what I think is interesting is that these ones here, directed by the Department of Housing, it's quite a big project. And there's a lot of other smaller projects around here by them, but they didn't need to have a huge publicity campaign. They didn't need to have a patron. They didn't need to publicize it. They just sort of went ahead and did it. And because it was based on them taking negative feedback about other projects and from what they learned, they've done a building here, which didn't meet much resistance, but it got a warm reception and it got accolades. I would say that the Strickland building is a major apartment building for Sydney architects and planners. But this one is also not as well known. When it is talked about, it's talked about with a lot of respect, you know, and also it's just talked about as an exceptional example of housing for all of those reasons. I think it still looks good now. Like it's not, it has not been maintained well. The gutters are leaking and there's roofing problems. But standing here now with the trees, sunshine, it's a lovely building and it's a beautiful street. That's right, Kieran, this building is known and loved
0: by architects in Sydney because it provides very decent housing. It's funny how the restrictions in a social housing brief bring out these innovations in design by trying to fit more density within an existing streetscape. Architects come up with new combinations of old ideas that do set benchmarks for future housing. The Strickland building broke a lot of conventions at the time and had that unique sort of cruciform plan with an extended perimeter wall that offered so much light and air to its residents. These are the sorts of buildings we can return to and learn from for design of new affordable housing.
3: I think both Strickland buildings for its time and this architecture, now how it's been written about and thought about is a very good standard of housing. Not just for New South Wales, but can compete on an international level for its quality of design and its planning and thought. I think because of their concern for each person sort of having an identifiable front door and little gardens in that sort of sense of my house, I think that's what people wanted. That's why they didn't like the towers. They wanted their own little identity and patch of garden. And that's what a terrace house gives you. Even if you had five families in it, you still had an identity that was your house. You can see it here, someone's yellow, someone's green, it's personality. That's why people love these little quirky balconies. And...
2: I guess the main thing we're talking about here, what capacity does architecture have to improve society and living conditions? Tadao Ando says he believes that architecture can improve your life a little bit. But if you look at the 20s, I think it's fair to say that the idea of housing was to erase existing housing And create something new that would be much better. And that's a sort of utopian ideal. When Karl Popper talks about utopian ideals and the ideals of people like Marx, he says these are authoritarian ideals. Waterloo is a utopian scheme. It's a utopian scheme from the 20s, built in the 70s. But these schemes that we're seeing around here in the back streets here, these are a lot more crafted piecemeal, reactive. They're in a dialogue with the city. Can you make anything of that, Michael?
0: I think it's the responsibility of architects to design buildings that do improve people's lives.
1: We started off with talking about the tours in the Homes for the People book. Um, What is the current approach to Homes for the People?
3: There's a lot of different architects doing a lot of different approaches. I don't think there's one approach. I think it depends on the client's brief.
0: I think architects are rediscovering historic public housing. There's been a long time in Sydney that we haven't built much public housing. There's been a recent push to increase construction of affordable housing. I think architects working on social housing now are rediscovering historical types of housing, be it from the eighties or the 1910s. It's very different to the design of market housing. So architects are rediscovering and coming to grips with what that brief is. It's a time of invention and it's a time of rediscovery.
1: It's been a really interesting walk and it's great to see this range of projects. Thanks, Michael
3: and Noni, for a great tour.
0: Thanks for having us.
3: Thank you.